previously on Save Me From My Shelf. our first proper anthology episode so we are doing a whole collection of Poe's stories. I made up my mind to take the life of the old man and thus rid myself of the eye forever. So he lives an old man, that guy's got a funny eye. <laughs> Crazy is radiating off this guy like stink lines off of pig pen. This is not the usher who recently broke up Kiki Palmer and her homophobic baby daddy. I don't know what it means. Different, okay. I know yeah. you don't. It's all very gothic. It's got a black oaken floor, high windows that let in little light, dark draperies on the walls. You know, imagine a spooky room. Probably mentioning this. I feel like you nick either one of us now and just queer readings just pour out. We're homophiliacs. Yeah, he's creepy and he's hot. It's very like, mmm, check you out, dusty daddy. The Red Death had long devastated the country. No pestilence had ever been so fatal or so hideous. What is this voice? It's my creepy American voice. I just went off on a tangent. I'm trying to pull a you. I'm trying to be more whimsical. Oh, don't. Get onto it. I typically run this podcast like it's the Navy, and then you complain. Welcome to Save Me From My Shelf, a literature podcast where we take classic tomes off their pedestal to make you less anxious about reading them. Our jokes come from a place of love and for a specific teaching purpose. However, if you think that making fun of great literature, and maybe some mild swearing, is offensive, this might not be the podcast for you. Hello, you are listening to Save Me From My Shelf. All the silent letters in Leicestershire here are Daniel. (laughs) Um... All the extra consonants in Mississippi <laughs> is Abby. <laughs> All right, guys, we are back. We're going to finish up doing Poe. But first, shall we get to some letters? This is another little aperçu from our good friend Adrian Gentleman on the adventures of Huckleberry Finn. So Adrian he- Gentleman's like your best friend. Yeah. You always go right for those comments. I do like them. I sh- yeah, I should do little likes on them, really, shouldn't I? I did do it once or twice. I need to go back on the YouTube account. So, here's what Adrian has to say. Another great episode. I haven't read this since primary school, more than 50 years ago. <laughs> Perhaps it's time to read it as an adult. Your take on it has given me a lot to think about. Useful thoughts. Not like intrusive thoughts. <laughs> could you imagine an intrusive thought in your voice? It's the worst thing I could think of. I can. I'm having them right now. <laughs> I have a letter. Top of the morning to you. Now, you think that's going to be an Irish fan, but it's not. Oh, okay. My name's Patricia, and I'm your biggest Portuguese fan. The island of Iberia. Patricia's goes on to say, if there's someone else out there, they can fight me. Well, I'm not interested in starting a turf war here, but there is... Is it Fabio, who's Portuguese? Oh, yeah. Our Australian Portuguese fan. And let's not forget Anna, who's Brazilian and at least speaks Portuguese, I Lucifone. assume. Lucifone. What? Lucifone. Speaks Portuguese. That's the word for somebody who speaks Portuguese. A Lucifone. Here's an idea Treaty of Tordesillas up the world. 
you can split between yourselves who <laughs> gets to be the biggest fan of this podcast on either side of the Atlantic. How's that? You are just showing off right now. I know Maybe. things about Portugal. Well, that's also about Spain. You're talking to a guy who's read the Lucy ads. Not in Portuguese, in English. Bully for you. You little kiss ass. Could we get back to Patricia's letter, please? Um... No, go on. As someone who studied English literature at university in Portugal, your podcast is a dream come true. Both of you make me laugh like crazy, even when I'm upset, but also make me reconsider some of my considerations about some of my favorite classics. I heard your The Monk episode. I just had to email you guys to tell you about this incredible video game called Immortality, where the plot of The Monk is part of the gameplay. And then she, she actually followed up and sent us a link to The Monk, which is very funny. Quite weird. I it's quite weird, yeah. Your podcast is such a huge inspiration, and I genuinely wish I could come study with you, but Brexit, you know? Oh, we know. Cheers, Patricia. Thanks, Patricia. And I do want to see you guys actually fight it out. I need to know who, at the very least, who our top Portuguese language fan is. These are important things. We have to know. So we can crown you. And who's your favorite? The person who knew the word Lucifone? Or the one who's not a righteous little toad? God, you need to be loved so badly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Hi, Abby and Daniel. I'm really happy that you've started a Patreon so that I can support you to keep making my favorite podcast. That's nice, isn't it? Uh, sound like I'm being sucky now, but I'm not. I'm, <laughs> I'm genuinely touched. I'm also enjoying the videos. There are videos on the Patreon website. And what are they about? They're about film studies, or at least the, At first, the lot, uh, first lot are. You need to know that, or none of the rest of this will be... So magical. Uh, as someone who did film studies at uni many years ago, it's great to revisit some of the techniques for analysing films without having the pressure of having to write an essay every month. Smiley face. One video reminded me that I must watch The Godfather and finally satisfy all of the many people in my life who can't believe I've never seen The Godfather. I assume these are all uh, men. Probably. I've seen the Barbie film, so... <laughs> that told me that only men like The Godfather. <laughs> Best bit in The Godfather? Let me tell you, it's the bit where he makes the pasta sauce and puts all there's a lot of meat going into that pasta sauce. It doesn't, it doesn't look very appetizing. Looks, well, you're a vegetarian. Well, no, I, th I think the, it looks great. No, even so, it looks like... I'm just thinking a lot of these gangsters probably were quite constipated. <laughs> so. so, those were our letters. I'm going to skip over the Masters and Patreon stuff. Let's just get right to it today, shall oh, we? Wow. We have done, in the previous episode, The Telltale Heart, The Fall of the House of Usher, and The Mask of the Red Death, and so what we're going to be doing this time is The Pit and the Pendulum, The Cask of Amontillado, The Black Cat, and The Raven. Tale the Fourth, The Pit and the Pendulum. Offer a few drinks down at the... <laughs> so, what have we learned about gothic literature on this podcast? That my opinions about it are golden and yours are garbage? Maybe, I don't know. But the main thing is, I'm just, just going to move on swiftly over from that. Catholics are scary. Oh, that's true. And that out of all Catholics, Spanish Catholics, and especially the Spanish Inquisition, are the scariest. They're always painting over pictures of Jesus and ruined them. <laughs> <laughs> also, Ao, this is the third appearance of the Inquisition this season. 
They're scary, aren't they? Imagine being put on trial by the Spanish Inquisition, awaiting judgment. We don't have to, because uh, our narrator, he's in that very pickle. And um, <laughs> Is he a named narrator he, or an unnamed he narrator? He doesn't have a name. <gasps> Klaxon! What's in a name? So, he's awaiting judgment! He's also, he's been so mistreated so far in all that, you know, you get tortured in the trials, don't you? That's what we learn from the monk. He's been so mistreated and he's so terrified of the sentence that he's in a bit of a nervous delirium. Quote, I saw the lips of the black-robed judges. They appeared to me white, whiter than the sheet upon which I traced these words, and thin even to grotesqueness, thin with the intensity of their expression of firmness, of immovable resolution, of stern contempt of human torture. I saw that the decrees of what to me was fate were still issuing from those lips. I saw them writhe with deadly locution. I saw them fashion the syllables of my name, and I shuddered because no sound succeeded. Creepy lips. Every American accent that you do, you go to a more and more exclusive yacht club. That's fine. I like doing that voice. I'm proud of it and I'm happy. You should be proud of it. I, I'm happy I'm to- I'm not going to be on. I'm not shitting on you. I think you're the star of this show. I'm happy to cede that to you. I'm not even jealous. It's like Lou Wasserman says, don't get in the spotlight, it fades your suit. I'm happy for you to have this. Okay, the thing that I hate about this opening bit, I don't like how this story starts. I really like it. Keep going. <sighs> I really enjoyed this story. This is my favorite one. Oh, really? Because we are really long story shorting this like opening bit for you guys that's what we do because yeah but the narrator just makes a real fucking meal out of how time slows down and everything goes silent and the candles dim and it's just so much purple prose i'm like this is two full pages of bs in a five page short story my god it really like it slows it to a crawl and not in a way that i find especially compelling or useful i like that it felt more like an experiment than an actual story to be honest so that's what i thought anyway this goes on for a long time. Whatever these judges say, our narrator can't hear them. He sinks into a stupor. Quote, silence and stillness and night were the universe. So that goes on for a while. It's a long, long way to say, my dude fainted. I think the story could actually more or less open here where I'm going to pick up. I don't think we need this opening vignette. And it'd be, I think it'd be a much tighter story for it. I don't want it to be a tight story. Continue. Okay. Um, as I said... <laughs> Your opinions are garbage and mine are golden. True. Our narrator wakes in a dungeon of some kind. It's almost pitch black in there and he's really disoriented. So he sort of wriggles around to see if he can feel anything at all or figure out where he is. He wonders, am I already dead? But nope, a bit more thrashing and he figures out he's probably still alive and he's not even chained up or anything. Hey. Eventually, he feels a stone wall somewhere behind him, quote, very smooth, slimy, and cold. Flocking back at home. Get enough of that at home. <laughs> <laughs> so he's able to walk around a bit, and he follows the wall's circumference, and he's like, God, how big is this cell exactly? Finally, he's like, okay, I need to, I need to be scientific about it. I'm going to rip a piece off my prison uniform and put it on the ground so once I've finally done a full lap, I'll know when the circuit is done. So the place is so enormous that before he can even do a full lap, he becomes exhausted, trips over, and decides, f*** it, I'll just sleep where I've fallen. When he wakes, he goes on with his circuits like an old person walking the mall. And I wondered, maybe the Spanish Inquisition is just trying to get him to do some cardio. Sweat that evil out. So he does the full circumference of the wall and finally finds the rag again. 
Okay, that's that done. But what about crossing the center of the room? Let's try that next. It's dangerous, though. Quote, the floor, although seemingly of solid material, was treacherous with slime. <laughs> so as he tries to cross the center of the room, he naturally slips and falls. <gasps> but wait, what's this? Quote, in the confusion attending my fall, I did not immediately apprehend a somewhat startling circumstance, which yet, in a few seconds afterwards, and while I still lay prostrate, arrested my attention. Uh, it was this. Good little preamble there, I like that. It was this. My chin rested upon the floor of the prison, but my lips and the upper portion of my head, although seemingly at a less elevation than the chin, touched nothing. So what's he saying? What What is this? What's happened? Well, can I add that a clammy vapour and the smell of decayed fungus wafts up to him. That's not telling us anything. What is going on? He is on the brink of a huge eponymous... Pit. Pet pendulum. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, he chucks a bit of masonry down. You know, we get a creepy long echo and then bloop, <laughs> after a while. <laughs> you know? Fill in the blank. Fill in like 20 seconds. Yeah. We don't have that kind of time. No. At that moment, he hears the sound of a door opening and closing and there's a little flash of light from above. So he thinks that maybe someone's, like, checking up on him? That's his... We want him to fall into the pit, maybe. Yeah, well, yeah. He's like, okay, so that's my punishment. I've heard, of, I've heard of this. People have legends about what goes on in these Toledo dungeons. This is one of them, that you're just sort of... You're psychologically tortured by being in this horrible cell. You can either stay and slowly starve or muster up some, some balls <laughs> and throw yourself into the pit. Our narrator's like, well, I'm too cowardly to die. And also, quote, Neither could I forget what I had read of these pits, that the sudden extinction of life formed no part of their most horrible plan. So, you're going to have a nasty fall. Yeah, nasty very, fall. Very, very sore. <laughs> it's actually a real shame that Poe did not live long enough to see the advent of psychology, because I think he would have done some really fucked up stuff with it as that sort of embedded itself more, like, in the mid-century and, and mm. then they're on. Sometimes you wonder if, as it gets, like, codified... If a formal discipline would have yeah. ruined it a bit? Yeah. Maybe you're right, but I just think, at the very least, you know he would have been like, oh, this is for me. Mm. Oh, yeah. Even if he, the execution wasn't good. Okay, so, big, nasty, huge pit, a sort of well in the middle of this prison floor. Let's avoid that, shall we? So he edges back to the wall, falls asleep again, and maybe he's been drugged or something, because when he wakes up, he finds a bunch of torture stuff in the dungeon now. And the lights are on. And the lights are on, and, worst of all, he's laying on his back, strapped to a wooden plank. But it's okay, they've left him some food in a bowl below, and one arm free to get, you know, some little snackums from the dish below. So it's very, like... Sorry we're about to torture you. Here's some Cheetos. Complimentary. Yeah. Also, the walls are all painted with creepy things. And the creepiest of them all, Grim Discovery, above him on the ceiling, is a mural painted in the figure of death. But wait, it's more than just a mural. This must be some sort of weird clock or something, because there's some giant pendulum, the eponymous pendulum, swinging down from the ceiling, looking like it's in death's hands. Wait a minute, that's not a normal clock pendulum. It's a giant blade swinging back and forth. And the dude's like, okay, it's creepy, but it's like 30 feet up, so who cares? Yawn. <laughs> yeah, he looks at some dungeon rats for a while to pass the time. Maybe he dozes, and then he looks up again, and he's like, is it just me, or is that 
pendulum blade a bit lower than it was before. Nah, it can't be. Oh, friend, it is. He soon figures out that that blade swinging back and forth is getting lowered inch by inch toward him. Quote, I could no longer doubt the doom prepared for me by monkish ingenuity <laughs> and torture. Anti-Catholic Claxon, please. <laughs> Look at them, bloody Catholics. What are we there? Protestant. Down. Still unceasingly, still inevitably down. We soon reach the point that only a slight sinking of the machinery will precipitate that keen, glistening axe onto our narrator's bosom. We get lots of tension building, as you might be able to tell, lots of nervous agony, talk, swoons. He faints a lot. Eventually, the narrator regains his powers of thought. He notices, he's like, oh, the cell is full of rats, and they've been helping themselves to my meager provisions. Rats are eating Cheetos. What a hilarious image well, to Well, no, they're not Cheetos. They are a, an oily and spicy viand, which has also a nice kind of tapas-y sort of... <laughs> well, you're in Spain. That's so what I'm yeah. thinking, yeah. So uh, tapas is stressful, isn't it? Because you've like, you got to wrangle everybody into ordering something coherent. You- tapas has flaws. I'm happy to agree with that. Yeah. So he grabs one of the f- remaining shreds of this tapas, which he is sharing with the rats, <laughs> and he robs it into the strap that's holding him down. And soon the wraps, they're crawling, you better believe they're crawling all over that, quote, anointed bandage. Oh, God. They crawled over everything, in fact. Quote, they swarmed over me in ever-accumulating heaps. They writhed upon my throat. Their cold lips sought my own. (laughs) I was half... It's getting a little romantic (laughs) here. Oh, I was half stifled by their thronging pressure, disgust, for which the world has no name, swelled in my bosom and chilled with a heavy clamminess my heart. Do rats have lips? I don't know, Daniel. What I do know is that I'm going to scream and scream until either my voice or my heart gives out. Okay. The plan works. Hooray. The rats gnaw through his tapasy restraints. And just in time, just mere seconds before the pendulum can get low enough to cut through his rind, the mm. scythe was low. Man rind. <laughs> Man rind. <laughs> Do you eat the rind? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, people always ask that, don't they? And the answer is yes, you do. So the scythe had lowered enough to have actually started to nick his torso a bit. He's free, he rolled free, he's only bleeding a little bit, flings himself to the ground before he can be cut in half. But the Inquisition is watching, and they have other things planned. See, I think they clearly left the tapas there to give him this feeling of hope and escape, I think. Why would you leave food for somebody you're about to slice in half? Tapas is often about making... A false sense of security, hope. isn't it? A false sense of hope. Yeah. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, why would they do that? Unless they're like, okay, let's let this guy think he's just well, escaped. Savages. They're going to give him something to eat. <laughs> Come on. So the Inquisition clearly has other things planned for him. The iron walls turn suddenly red hot and start moving in from all sides. And I would like to read you what Daniel wrote here, which is... The once square room is now getting disturbingly rhomboid if you catch my drift. Ooh, scary. Ooh, I'm getting chills. And they're multiplying. So what's a boy to do? Die via panini press or throw yourself down the pit? Oh no, how will he ever escape? Also, Daniel, is this what the Catholic Church is using everyone's tithes for? Just strangle him and be done with it. What's with the big gothic striptease? What happened to garroting? 
Seriously, this is not efficient. I don't like this. This is a bad representation of how my people torture people. Also, you sounded a bit Martin Luther, aren't you? Being all like, you know, this is not actually in the Bible. We need to go back <laughs> to the ways that people torture people in that. This I, is this is very Catholic, and it's the, it's the Protestants that just kick I, you in the ass. I don't mind a little showmanship. I don't care if it's in the Bible or not. I'm just thinking, like, guys, is this really worth your time? Like, get your kicks with somebody higher up. This guy sounds like a dork. Why are we wasting our time torturing this loser? Oh, good point. Yeah, you're right. Anyway. The room is flattening out. The walls are red hot. They're choking him closer and closer towards the pit. And just as he's about to topple in, only an inch of foothold left, everything stops. Hooray. But what on earth has happened? What is the last thing you would think has happened, Daniel? Um, he got the crystal, and then we can leave. <laughs> and they're going to go to the crystal dome. No. Oh. No, you know what's happened? Apparently, the French have invaded Spain, and the French are there to save him. The end. What the f*** is that ending? I am furious. I am incandescent. I am radiating hot like those rhomboid walls. Yeah. I, I, thought, I didn't really mind that. It's obviously silly, but I didn't really mind that. I like the Napoleonic Wars. I want to kick this story in its ass and steal its lunch money for wasting my time. Nah, they're all like that, really, aren't they, books? <laughs> Tale of the Fifth, the cask of Amontillado. Type sherry or something. So we open with a narrator, Montresor, who's actually unnamed for most of this, I will say. We don't find out his name until quite far in the story. But Unnamed narrator Claxon. In spirit. In spirit. If not in letter. What's in a name? So Montresor says, do you know Fortunato? Well, he's a wrongin'. It's not a direct quote. And I want to avenge myself against this guy because he has done me, quote, a thousand injuries. So we're in Italy, a world of Baroque decaying mansions and Baroque decayed aristocrats and even more Baroque decayed punishments. And as Daniel wrote, it's time for our narrator to open up a can of whoop-ass. I should have said cask of whoop-ass. Mr. Mr. Trick there. But where's a psychopath to begin? First thing is to keep smiling and making nicey-nice with Fortunato so he doesn't suspect. Then find Fortunato's greatest weakness to exploit. The problem is, Fortunato's a pretty upstanding and virtuous guy, the narrator admits. But he does have one weakness. Fortunato considers himself a bit of a wine connoisseur. Of course that's all nonsense, the narrator thinks. Imagine an Italian thinking he knows anything about wine. Mm -hmm. Idiot. Classic. But this is my in to revenge. We never even know what Fortunato did, do we? Nope. It's carnival. You know, Italy. We're in... Every day in Italy is like this, isn't it? Stop. Everybody's dressed up in clown gear. Like you've never gone crazy before Lent. That is true. Oh, uh, hello, Fortunato. How's it going? Bit drunk, are you? Just as a harlequin with little bells on, are you? Uh, you're good with wine, aren't you? Well, I just bought a cask of Amontillado, and I'm worried I've been diddled on it. Doesn't diddled mean something else? Can do, but it can also mean... Cheated? Defrauded. Okay. Yes. I was going to ask our friend Lucrezi, 
Uh, oh, Lucrezia you cannot tell Amontillado from Sherry. Fortunato interrupts slightly drunkenly. You know, I'll come and have a look. Let's go down to your vaults. So he has been well and truly played. That's what was happening there, a play. That was easy. Yeah. <laughs> There's not really much preamble. We just get straight to the punishment, no, don't we? No, this story... It's missing something. This is a story yeah. that could have been fleshed out a little bit more in the beginning. I'm sorry to be a bit vulgar, but it's, it's just a bit of a fart, isn't it? It's just nothing. You are such a boy. Standard critical term. You are very ass-centric this week. What is happening? Just building on, you know, once, once one thing gets established early on in the episode, you I have just, to play on it. It's called a callback, Abby, you yeah. dumb broad. Exactly. Um, okay. Yeah. They go back to Montresor, our narrator's place. Uh, palazzo. Play. My apartment. No, he's got a whole palazzo. I'm so sorry to let you down week after week. That's all right. I think when you die, I should be one of your pallbearers so I can let you down one final time. <laughs> so, Montresor's servants are all very conveniently off-celebrating Carnival. So he's like, oh, it's just the two of us tonight, buddy. Let's grab some torches. We'll head down to the basement. So they go into the big wine cellar. And Fortunato looks ridiculous. He's staggering around all drunk, and he's got his cute little bells on his costume, all a jingle jangling. And Fortunato's like, Christ, this basement is huge. How much farther do we have to walk? And then the narrator says, Don't you know who my family is? You think we f around with wine? We don't f with wine. And so they start talking then about the narrator's great family lineage as they basically go on what I cannot oversell is a quest through it, this wine cellar. That's how big it is. He's just bought the cask. That's what I'd be like. You just bought this cask. Why have you put it <laughs> all the way at the back of your... Yeah, anyway. A very good point. So the two men keep walking for an age and eventually... They walk so far that the cellar turns into the family catacombs. There are skeletons and, like, rotting bodies mixed up with the casks. Adds to the flavor, I guess. Mm -hmm. See, this is this is where I'd start to twig that it's a trap, and I'd get very Clarice Starling and be like, oh, may I use your phone, please? But Fortunato doesn't twig it, because the narrator keeps feeding him booze the whole way. And he even gets so drunk that he reveals he's in the Freemasons and does some little bottle-throwing trick, which I guess is a way they identify each other. And he's like, oh, do you know? Are you a Mason? And the narrator's like, yep, definitely, 100% sure a Mason. Yep. When he gets a trowel out. Hilarious gag. Well, it's also Chekhov's trowel, isn't it? <laughs> Chekhov's Well, it is, though. I know. Also, Fortunato coughs with all the dust. Quote, and this is a direct quote. Ugh, ugh, ugh. <laughs> Ugh, 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 You're a real showman. Yeah, it's a good bit. I'm going to do that on all the world stages. Um, what stage is a diplomatic metaphor. Going to sell out Carnegie Hall yeah. with your ugh, ugh. <laughs> so they keep going. They take a scooter and then a hang glider and then a frigate and then two helicopters to get where they're going. And they're properly in family crypt territory. Now it's just bones, not even wine. But the narrator swears, oh, that cask of Amontillado, it is definitely down here. And, uh, oh, uh, Fortunato, if you just go into that handy dark recess, you'll find it. Yes, please. So Fortunato stumbles in, bit pissed, remember, and scarcely realizes what's happening when the narrator throws some chains around his waist and padlocks him to the wall. Creepy. Some sort of torture 
It's not even a chamber. It's a little outcrop. Torture alcove. The breakfast nook. Torture alcove. Torture nook. So Fortunato, he stares dumbfounded at the narrator. He's just like, but if I'm on Tiado. Wake up, sheeple. Go on, (laughs) Ted. So the narrator sweeps some bones off a pile, brings out his masonry tools. You know what I read that Poe briefly worked as a bricklayer. Really? He's writing what he knows. <laughs> so uh, he starts bricking up the niche that Fortunato is chained up in. This starts to sober Fortunato up. And as the wall gets higher and higher, Fortunato begins to moan. Unfortunato, we should probably call him, <laughs> shouldn't we? I assume that's why he's so named. It's ironic. Um, this also such a shit conceptual pun of like I'll show you who's a mason as he's like mixing his mortar and stacking bricks yeah I thought that was tacky yeah but I don't know if it's the character being tacky or not the whole thing's crazy okay Um, so he moans then he screams then he goes silent the narrator's about to fit the very last brick into the wall and Fortunato starts laughing yeah it's a bit creepy and even the narrator stops what he's doing but the laugh, it's not a nice creepy laugh, actually. It's just a bluff. Fortunato's like, great joke, buddy. You are so hilarious. But you can let me out now, and I can't wait to laugh about this with you later in the piazza. We'll go to my palazzo, then we'll go to the piazza. <laughs> we'll share a pizza. It'll be lovely. The narrator slots that last brick in. I did not realize that Tetris could be played for revenge. And then he takes some of his family bones, I guess, sorry, Grandpa, and he piles them up against the nice new wall so no one will notice that the mortar is new. Doot, doot, wipe your hands off, bye-bye! And he finishes the story by saying, no one has disturbed the bones up against that wall for 50 years. And believe you me, I've been checking. And I'm like, for 50 years? Get a hobby! The last words are, in pace requiescat, i.e., rest in peace, f***o. Tale the Sixth, The Black Cat. So we once again open with an unnamed narrator, Claxon. What's in a name? Facing execution for an unknown charge. So again, it's just like the pit in the pendulum. And he's another dude swearing he's not crazy, even though he knows this sounds super crazy. So again, it's the telltale heart. So he says, hey, look, I know I'm going to die tomorrow. I might as well get this off my chest. I'm going to tell you my life story. When I was a kid, I was quiet and docile, and my soft heart got me beat up a lot on the playground. In particular, I really loved animals. I, quote, never was so happy as when feeding and caressing them. This peculiarity of character grew with my growth, and in my manhood, I derived from it one of my principal sources of pleasure. Just say you're a weirdo horse boy who became a weirdo horse man and it took a sexual turn. Is this the law he broke? (laughs) <laughs> it feel, like he's intense about it that's not that's not just me he goes on a lot about the quote intensity of his feelings towards animals so mm, yeah. eh. and he, he does eventually marry a human woman I assume and she's the perfect horse girl to his horse boy and they open up a tab at the local animal shelter <laughs> quote we had birds goldfish a fine dog rabbits a small monkey 
and a cat. Monkey. I know, come on. That's not suitable. <laughs> the cat was black, very large and beautiful, and seemingly very clever. The narrator says, we called him Pluto, and he was my favorite. Pluto is a great name for a cat. F*** that Disney dog. It's a much better name for a cat. Why? I don't know. Okay, sorry. <laughs> so yeah, he and the cat, they're best buds. You, you know, you can't underscore that enough. As the years went by, however, our narrator tells us he changed. I became, quote, more moody, more irritable, more regardless of the feelings of others. He no longer baby Simba's the cat like no. he used to. Don't worry about the cat. Listen to this. I suffered myself to use intemperate language to my wife. At length, I even offered her personal violence. Offered her personal violence. That's not. Would way. you like a knuckle sandwich? Yeah, it is like that, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad we can get a bit of humor out of her <laughs> wife beating. Battered women sounds delicious. <laughs> yeah, it's there's the Scott in you coming out. <laughs> um, I was cruel to the pets too, eventually even to the cat, the favourite pet. So, why why did the narrator change? It was the sauce. Booze. Amontillado will do that to you. Yeah, it will. Reader, be warned. <laughs> or Some people think it's a parody of Temperance Lit. Oh, it might well be. I could see that, actually. Mm. From a noted alcoholic author. Mm. <laughs> Well, the only thing he can stand besides booze is the cat. But even Pluto won't stand for the narrator's piss-poor attitude forever, especially as the cat grows older and more irritable himself. So one night the narrator comes home from the pub, a bit sozzled, mm. and he comes and he's like, Hey, Pluto, are you avoiding me? That's rude. And he grabs the probably sleeping geriatric cat by the scruff of the neck. Now, Pluto, bit of a shock as anyone would be, woken up that, you know, forcefully, gives the narrator a bit of a bite on the forearm. Now this sends the narrator into a blind, drunken rage. My dude basically, like, astral projects out of his body and sort of watches from up on, like, the ceiling. And he sees himself grab... Okay, this is the eye bit. If anyone doesn't like stuff that happens with eyes, fast forward, like, 30 seconds. He grabs his pocket knife and pops out one of the cat's eyes. Oh. We are straying real far from God's light today. Yeah. So the narrator at least has the decency to be appalled by his behavior now. Like he gets kind of choked up about it, recounting it. But it was the demon drink that seized him. I mean, I guess it's cool and heroic for Odysseus to get drunk and put somebody's eye out. But and that guy only had one. <laughs> but when I do it... <laughs> So in the morning, once he's slept it off, he feels pretty guilty and sheepish. God, what do I do to deal with all my guilt? Have you considered, he thinks, have you considered doing alcohol about it? Great idea, me. Let's get drunk to deal with the guilt and then lather, rinse, repeat. So he goes on a bender. The cat recovers from its injury well enough, but unsurprisingly, their friendship's real over, and the cat flees whenever the narrator's nearby. At first, the narrator is impossibly saddened by this. Then he gets a bit irritated. It's very, I'm sorry, baby, okay? What do I got to do to make it up to mm -hmm. you? But then he realizes nothing will bring back his former relationship with the cat. So he starts to lean into a feeling of, PERVERSENESS, which Poe writes in all caps that I thought was pretty funny. Mm. One day, he... 
grabs the cat and hangs it from a tree in his back garden. And he's all sad about it. You know, oh, it will hurt me to do this. Oh, I'm doing it because the cat had done no wrong. Because by doing this, I know I'm committing a horrible sin. Oh, the perversity. Mm -hmm. That night, guess what happens? House burns down. I'm not even going to let you guess. Um, <laughs> his Rochester-ass narrator. Exactly, yes. So this destroys the narrator's entire worldly wealth. The next day, he goes to explore the ruins and encounters the image of the cat impressed on a surviving wall. I didn't fully get what was going on here. There's a kind of like a surviving bit of plastering and like into the plastering is this silhouette of the cat with a rope around its neck. Mm-hmm. So he's like, oh, that must be just that someone threw it, the cat in while it was on fire. The house was on fire and it sort of like impressed itself on the wall or something i don't know he tries to he tries to write he's like science can surely explain this and the the creepiest bit is that that one remaining standing wall is where the headboard of his bed was so he's like well i don't want to think about like a ghost cat standing above my head while i was sleeping so well who would science yeah somebody's gonna cut down the cat you left swinging while your house is on fire and chuck it in through your bedroom window and it'll just happen to perfectly singe an outline such a sort of like in america in the 1840s i bet things like that would happen like every day (laughs) it just seems like so much the kind of the vibe of american (laughs) urban life at the time so it's a mystery anyway yeah later on he gets over it he goes to booze in some quote den of more than infamy is that like a kind of rating on TripAdvisor? <laughs> no, no. The Yelp reviews are yeah. off the charts. <laughs> so the narrator encounters another cat. It's just as big as Pluto, but it has a slight splotch of white on its breast. This cat also only has one eye, so it's almost a dead ringer for the guy. Vertigo. We're in the movie Vertigo, and I hope that he falls in love with this cat like Jimmy Stewart. He keeps trying to get it to dress up as the... Yeah, well. gets it, buys it chic little suits. Yeah. Cats don't wear clothes, do they? They're naked. Pajamas, they famously have. The cat's pajamas. Yeah, that's a good point. He tries to buy the cat from the landlord of this pub. He says, well, it's no one to know me, squire. Uh, and the cat then just follows him home. It's all purring and affectionate and stuff. And very quickly becomes a member of the household. Ooh. Ooh. That's saccharin and also fucking poison. So the narrator's like... Oh, what did I ever do to deserve such a love as this? And meanwhile, his wife is right there like, um, hello. So he's like, great, I can, I can start afresh with this new cat. A new chance at love. It goes well for a little bit, but unexpectedly, this new cat ends up tapping a horrible guilt in him, and it makes him revile the creature. The more he tries to avoid it, the more attached the cat gets, even going so far as to sink its claws into the narrator's bathrobe when he tries to walk away. So the cat's just hanging there like a Mm. rock climber. He's like a finger trap, like the more I pull away from this cat, the more it keeps me weirder still you know that white splotch on the cat's chest at first it didn't resemble anything did it but over time it's almost like the fur has shifted and it's starting to resemble a gallows now by this point the narrator is having horrible nightmares every night is this the same cat come to enact some sort of psychological torture on me? Why won't Pluto die if it is the same cat? Is it a Terminator? Is this Keith Richards the cat whom death cannot touch? What is happening? So, sensing that Pluto is having his sort of cosmic re- revenge on the narrator, uh, our narrator's tipped into despair. He just generally starts to act much, much worse. He's abusing his wife a bit more. She is generally, quote, uncomplaining and patient, but... 
One day, when the narrator tries to kill the cat with an axe, she stops him. And so, he tells us, he buried the axe in her brain. I'd say go to therapy, but it might be a bit late yeah, for that. I think so. so, that's good. <laughs> now, how are we going to dispose of the body? And I think this is really important here. We see little glimmers of all of the previous stories we've touched. So he goes through options. Should I chop it into bits? Should I bury it beneath the floorboards? Should I throw it down the well? Mm -hmm. And I just thought that's really interesting. He's like recycling bits that he's already used. And you've got a few ideas, I think, is the impression I'm getting. I just think it's interesting, the preoccupation of how many different shades yeah. you can get. Really building a, like a proper web or network of interlinking ideas. Oh, no, definitely. And, uh... Exploring them in very similar ways, again and again. So, so, what's the option? The Amontillado one is the one that we haven't mentioned, and that's what he goes for. He decides to wall her up in this cellar that they've been living in since the fire. So, our narrator, he dislodges some bricks and deposits his wife's corpse behind them, then walling her up again. And he even does a little bit of plastering, which, you know, I was quite impressed <laughs> by. Um, He's looking for the cat a bit later, and he's like, oh, it seems to have disappeared. Great. I didn't want that cat anyway. Yeah, so he sleeps soundly that night. Quote, I slept even with the burden of murder upon my soul. Got rid of my patient wife, never given it all this. Got rid of the cat who loved me too much. Yeah, but that cat was, you know, like, calm down, bitch. You look desperate. You're a little needy. He's like a dog. That's the true horror. So, four days of silence and peace and uninterrupted Netflix binging, I guess. But then, the police turn up. And I kind of don't buy this. I'm like, who called them and why? These these jerks live in a basement and clearly keep to themselves. Yeah, I was wondering that. I was wondering if maybe someone knew the wife. I'm calling bullshit. Catchphrase. The narrator, very similar to the one in the Telltale Heart, he's pretty cocky about this. His handiwork around the house is excellent. They're not gonna find anything. And they don't. They look around, all looks well, bye bye But the narrator clearly, like, wants to get caught because he tempts fate too much. As the police are leaving, <laughs> he decides to randomly talk about how great the construction of the basement walls are. And he even raps with his cane on the section of the wall that's covering up his wife. Like, that's not a weird, sus comment. Like, why would you, apropos of nothing, say that to the police? And the police are like, uh, okay, great. Stur cool. Sturdy yeah. walls. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. At that moment, a strange cry is heard from behind the wall. Quote, a cry at first muffled and broken, like the sobbing of a child, and then quickly swelling into one long, loud and continuous scream, utterly anomalous and inhuman. A howl, a wailing shriek, half of horror and half of triumph, such as might have arisen out only of hell. <gasps> Conjointly from the throats of the damned in their agony and of the demons that exult in the damnation. Look at that diaphragm work you've done. Yeah, God. The cops... Well... The game's up, Sonny. They break down the wall. What do they find? The wife's body, already greatly decayed and clotted with gore. Nasty. Uh, guess who else is there? Upon its head, uh, the corpse that is, with red extended mouth and solitary eye of fire. Like a telltale heart. Yeah, sat the hideous beast whose craft had seduced me into murder. Oh, it's the cat's fault. <laughs> seduced me into murder and whose informing voice had consigned me to the hangman. I had walled the monster up within the tomb. So that's the end of that story.
tale, the seventh, the raven. Can you answer that riddle, Daniel? Why is a raven like a writing desk? Uh, in later editions, he puts the answer. Dodgson, Carol, whatever his name is. I can't remember what the answer is, though. Why, do you have one? Oh, because Poe wrote on both. Ah, very good. Well, this is our very first narrative poem that isn't an epic poem, that is. We've had plenty of verse on this show before, but never a sort of like, this is what would be called a dramatic monologue, which is a very specific type of poem in the early to mid-19th century. And it opens with a very famous verse that I'm sure you all know and could probably recite along with me. Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered, weak and weary, over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore, while I nodded, nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping, as of someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. "'Tis some visitor,' I muttered, tapping at my chamber door. "'Only this, and nothing more.'" I wanted to stop here before we get into the proper setup, and I wanted to talk about why this is such a famous poem. And it comes down to Poe's really skillful use of plosive versus non-plosive words. And plosive is when you can say something really quickly. So it's things with P's, T's, B's, D's, you know, pa 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 da 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 you know. it. pa pa like Whereas non-plosive are things like liquid sounds, nasal sounds, and sibilant sounds. So lots of L's, W's, R's, D's, M's, and thing, anything that takes you a long time to say. Now, if you actually like pull up a copy of this poem, you'll see how much of this is non-plosive. So you physically can't read it very fast. Once upon a midnight dreary while I pondered weak and weird. Like these are long sounding syllables. It drags it out and it makes it quite creepy. And then when we get to the rapping, rapping, tapping, that's the shock in the middle of it because then we have plosives. The pacing is the reason that it's such a creepy and dread-filled poem. How the phonology of yeah. the poem can contribute to that. So... It's bleak December. We've got this bloke, some unnamed first-person narrator. Ooh, Claxon, another unnamed narrator. What's in a name? He's soaking in his bedroom. He's reading Forgotten Law. Seems that's all stuff about, you know, who Chewbacca's dad was and things. You know, that's <laughs> reading about the lore. I hate the way that word's come back. Um, it's Chewbacca's dad. That's where you go first. I don't know. What do you think the lore is? I don't know. I, I thought it was like ghost stories or other like legends. I, I, just, I, I know. know, what I, I, know. Mean, I know. Yeah. I know. No, yeah. It's obviously some kind of esoteric text, possibly a bit of Robert Flood. Who knows? The fire dies down. Quote, each separate dying ember wrought its ghost upon the floor. So why is he upset? Well, somebody, possibly a woman, possibly... A brand of fabric detergent <laughs> called Lenore has just died and he can't stop fixating on it. And when this guy just couldn't be more haunted, you know, the fire, Lenore, the spooky lore, what does he hear? But a mysterious knock upon his door. You know, well, I'm not expecting anyone. Quote, and the silken sad and certain rustling of each purple curtain thrilled me, filled me with fantastic terrors never felt before. So he gets up, opens the door, no one's there. We've all been there, haven't we? Teenagers. Classic horror movie thing. Or that. Yeah. I was just thinking when kids knock on your door. And, you know. <laughs> Ding dong ditched. Yeah. Flaming bag of poop on the ground. You're very shit focused in this episode. So he's just like, oh, there's no one there. Is it Lenore? 
Do you think it's Lenore, sir? She didn't smell a shit, did she? She smelled nice, like fabric softener or whatever. He closes the door. What do you think happens? Yes, more rapping coming louder now. It's Puff Daddy or one of them lot, isn't it? No, it's Martin Luther nailing his thesis to the door. Burning bag of thesis. (laughs) (sighs) Where's it coming from? The window? Quote, Open here I flung the shutter, one with many a flirt and flutter. In there stepped a stately raven of the saintly day of yore. So this raven's got a real attitude problem, too. (laughs) It just barges in like it owns the place without so much as a buy or a leave. And it flies up to the top of the narrator's door where he's put a bust of Pallas Athene, a Greek goddess, on the shelf. So the raven just goes and sits up really high and stares down at the narrator, not talking. And that's a great power move. I think that hits every note in the Jack Donaghy 30 Rock playbook for businessmen. Sit higher than your rival. Stay silent. Make the other person talk first. Dress all in black. A raven flies on a shelf and you go, why is this raven not talking? (laughs) That's what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to not talk. (laughs) So the narrator's like, ooh, that's spooky. Aren't ravens a thing in like mythology a lot? No, it's sitting on a mythological bust and this is, oh, it's very creepy. You know, what are you doing here, raven? Why were you rapping? rapping at my door and the raven's like oh my name is raven and i'm here to say you'll see your lenore another day another day another dime another (laughs) (laughs) that's not mine that's um that's that's the dean's rap from community i'm so sorry um no i'm only joking the raven doesn't say that the raven only responds with nevermore i'm a bit creeped out you know (laughs) (laughs) Rapping at the door thing. You said Puff Daddy. I thought that was enough. (laughs) Quote, Much I marveled this ungainly fowl to hear discourse so plainly, though its answer little meaning, little relevancy, bore. What, now there's a pig in the house? What? (laughs) Not that kind of bore. Oh, sorry. So in other words, he's saying, Hey, I'm really shocked to hear this bird is talking, but its dumbass didn't make any sense. It just keeps saying nevermore over and over again. What is that? So the narrator can't get anything further out of the raven except nevermore. And he's like, are you an NPC? What's happening? Say something else, damn it. So the narrator, what does he do? He drags a chair over. So we can have a little sit and have a long, good stare at that raven. What's going on here? What's your deal, raven? The raven doesn't like being questioned. Do not question the raven. I'm the one who disconcertingly stares at you, my friend. Not the other way around. Quote, this I sat engaged in guessing, but no syllable expressing, to the fowl whose fiery eyes now burned into my bosom's core. More scary eyes. More scary, fiery eyes. We found out that he's sitting on a purple velvet chair. Which I've, I've determined to make into a queer reading. I just wrote, yas queen. Okay, it's a bit tacky, I think. Pallas Athene, velvet chair. This is enough flat, yeah. isn't it? Calm down, talented Mr. Ripley. The kind of mood shifts at this point. The air grows dense. The narrator can smell incense, possibly religious incense. I don't know if it has any beliefs. Is this an angel raven? A demon? The narrator gets cross, possibly at God, saying, quote, You've been sent here to distract me from my sulking, but being moody is the only thing I'm good at. The raven just keeps saying, nevermore. Oh, that is so raven. (laughs) It's the future I can see. You know, is there a heaven? You know, come on, raven, crack. But the raven will only say, nevermore. The narrator, furious, commands the bird to leave. Go on, get, get on. 
but the raven won't, he just says, nevermore. Quote, and the raven, never flirting, still is sitting, still is sitting, on the pallid bust of Pallas just above my chamber door. And his eyes have all the seeming of a demon's that is dreaming, and the lamplight o'er him streaming throws his shadows on the floor. And my soul from out that shadow that lies floating on the floor shall be lifted nevermore. So I guess moral of the story is they're just going to stay together in this haunted ass room forever. Stuck in the middle with Boo. No. I'm ashamed. I feel shame. The end! Right. Would you like some casting? Yes, I would. Well, I was thinking of the Guillermo del Toro anthology show, The Cabinet of Curiosities, because he just did the Lovecraft one. Did he? Well, some of them were Lovecraft's short stories. Can I just say that Lovecraft rips Poe off a lot? Oh, probably. Yeah, so I'm sure. It, it makes sense to go in this direction. I think there were only one or two that were actually Lovecraft. Still though. Anyway, yeah. yeah. But yeah, I want one of those anthology shows where each story is its own episode. But in this one, I want the leads to always be the same. So ah. if, if there's a younger guy, I want Nicholas Holt. And if there's an older guy in the mix, I want Tom Waits. Yeah. yeah. I just think, it'd be, I think they'd have a lot of fun. It'd be good, campy, gory fun. And now for our segment... Bad Goodreads Reviews. I'm just not into poetry. Unless it's a limerick, and the nastier the better. <laughs> One star. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> this was tedious, repetitive, prattling, and French. I'd rather be a nap-nap-napping. <laughs> One star. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Yeah. I like, if you're going to write a useless review, at least make it be funny. Shall we do some analysis? We shall. Overt narration, unreliable narrators. Every narrator is very conspicuous, aren't they? Mm -hmm. Like, there's a lot of those kind of dialogic elements, like we were talking about with um, the Telltale Heart. They address a reader very often, which makes you feel like you maybe are almost seeing something you shouldn't. Or you're, or you're kind of complicit, almost maybe. In yeah, that sort of Norman like a... Bates way. Also, yeah, unreliable narrators and, by extension, nameless narrators. What's going on here then? I wasn't sure if it's more of a confessional. A lot of these are very mm. like the thing I could only anonymously tell a priest or a therapist or something. This I was kept thinking this, but I couldn't remember the phrasing but i was thinking like the sort of not a reader i'm gonna add first of all it's like the sort of penthouse forum type thing where it's sort of like you know i'd often read the penthouse forum and often wondered if the stories were true and then i you know, Do you know it's okay we know you only read it for the articles it's okay <laughs> but they are like that You're aren't a they? Like, no, the, the, this is the, isn't this the one that's all just sort of supposedly real sexy stories about you know just improbable yeah exactly they're just a bit like that aren't they that's what i was thinking that and that is the sort of confessional edge to it it's sort of titillating but also a remove yeah i wanted to go back to the idea of the the namelessness stuff because on the one hand there's that sense of authenticity of like well i can tell you this because it's so anonymous and only a truly anonymous person can be this honest also there's a weird like sense of identity there where these these narrators have these very strong voices and they let us into some of these horrible secrets but there are also things that they really hold back from us mm. like the telltale heart what is even this situation how did you get here and i actually saw somebody on twitter say that very few of these stories have pronouns attached we make the assumption that they're men but mm. how would these stories change if they were women yeah 
And I mean, I think that's worth considering. A lot of these, we don't know the names. We don't know what happened. Pit in the pendulum. What's his crime? Doesn't matter. We don't even know if it's a man or a woman. Yeah. I mean, there's obviously like a gender reading there, but also that speaks to another thing that, although people associate Poe with like embodiment and, you know, torture and mm -hmm. stuff, he's not really that interested in the body of the narrator, is he? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of stuff about the character of Thor and the kind of interweaving of rational and irrational ways of thinking and how they might yeah. kind of you know, negatively work together or, you know, in kind of crazy ways. And I feel like that that seems like a very romantic to Victorian motif. It feels a bit like um, words of Tintin Abbey, mm -hmm. where it's all about just kind of exploring the contours of your thought. But here it's like these kind of depraved minds. It's a bit like those poems as well, those Browning ones. Yeah. Very similar to those. If, if you guys like Poe and you want more stuff like this, Robert Browning, his madhouse sells... It covers very similar territory around the same time, mm. and it's really good. Yeah. But I like that idea of, you know, we were talking about these being very sensory poems. He's very concerned with people looking and smelling and hearing, you know, all of this stuff. But you're right, it's somehow, they don't seem to be rooted in the body. Mm. And it's almost more, how does the mind process the yeah. senses? Yeah. And yeah. that links then with what you were saying before about, like, you know, oh, he can't really hear the guy's heart beating through the floorboards. The guy's dead, and you wouldn't be able to hear that mm. anyway. But the idea of madness and cognition and how that links with your senses and oral hallucinations and things like that. That's why The Pit and the Pendulum seemed particularly appealing to me for some reason, because the exoteric reading of that story is it's just a kind of perverse look at different torture mm -hmm. methods. But the kind of more esoteric reading is that we're kind of trapped in this guy's head mm -hmm. in the same way that he's, he's supposedly trapped, trapped in, in a cell. But it kind of doesn't even really matter what's happening to him. It's more that we're just kind of subject to this ongoing, yeah. you know, slew of kind of histrionic emotional states. So I feel like... And that threat of the pit, we don't know what depths we are going to go down with Well, him. yeah, there's definitely a psychoanalytic thing yeah. there, like the, his id or whatever. Or yeah. Her, or her id. Uh, ladies have its too. Some <laughs> <laughs> uh, little lady id. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's got, maybe it's got some like eyelashes and a, and a bow in its hair. That's how you know. That's how you know. Um, also, Poe short stories. He actually, he did write a little kind of a article about the short story mm -hmm. and he says like, oh, they're great because you can have a kind of artistic coherence that you can't get with a novel, but you still have the sort of stylistic freedom and ability to engage in abstract thought that you don't really get with a poem. I don't know whether I necessarily agree with him on yeah. either count, but it's interesting that he was himself theorizing the short story. What about the repetition in this? Yeah. Because not only does each story have its own repetition like in cask of amontillado fortunato says amontillado over and over mm. and over and he coughs that weird cough the raven is always saying nevermore and the narrator is saying tapping tap you know like even in like the black cat the cat comes back mm. yeah the thematic repetition and the stylistic repetition yeah but then all of these stories are echoes of each other mm. so he's repeating a lot of the same story or the same themes over and over yeah i'm a little pro recycling queen <laughs> well it they're quite poetic, aren't they? Despite him mm -hmm. saying that short stories aren't poetic. They, like, stylistically, but also thematically, yeah. there are these just recurring images that kind of have an aural effect when you're yeah. reading them. I mean, it's funny that Baudelaire was this first big translator of Poe and then also supposedly invented the prose poem, because mm -hmm. a lot of these feel like prose poems, don't they? Yeah. And I wondered if they sort of are mutually reinforcing, if we sort of, by literally triangulating them, they lean against each other and become the stronger for doing it. Because I was thinking that repetition is one of those things that builds and compounds horror. It's scarier, it's more dreamlike, it sort of feels inescapable that, oh God, we're here mm. again and again and again. 
it's also like a psychoanalytic thing, isn't it? That compulsion to repeat. Yeah. <laughs> Even when you know it's not good for you. The, that's the, about the, the perversity that, that the guy in the black cat says. But I thought an interesting thing about Poe as a person who's developing the Gothic, as opposed to those kind of high Gothic mm-hmm. works that we've looked at before, is that loads of these have a kind of modernity about them, like mm-hmm. they're set in cities, or even the pit and the pendulum, you know, that Napoleonic ending, that is a kind of modern motif, yeah. isn't it? I was thinking that that's a kind of both indicative of how the Gothic is evolving beyond that mm-hmm. high period. I mean, like... Frankenstein is sort of a foot in either, isn't it? Yeah. It's talking about science, but it's also got all this kind of whimsical castles and everything. I liked your idea about how this is showing the Gothic fracturing off into what's going to become the urban Gothic, where we're more concerned with modernity and cities and things like that. Because I was thinking that he's dealing with some very real material issues, like, you know, alcoholism and guilt and economics, infectious disease, congenital disease... But he can almost only express it through magic. Like, the burgeoning modernity is almost scarier. Mm. There's more comfort coming at it obliquely via, like, a supernatural horror. Yeah. And that's why I thought it was interesting. The Pit and the Pendulum is the only one we read that isn't a supernatural story, but it's told as if it were. Yeah. It's framed very much like this magic room, even though he's like, well, I know they're doing it. These are just the... And also the, the rescue is a magic thing yes exactly yeah yeah. yeah, i know what you mean that leads to we we didn't do the rue morgue or the purloin letter or anything but that leads to detective fiction you can see detective fiction is a sort of this is springboarding off yeah not maybe not an offshoot of the gothic but it's a sort of it's an evolution within the kind of realms of genre fiction thinking about okay crazy things happening in the modern world can we find ways of explaining it you know Mm -hmm. these stories are like detective stories without the explanation at the end almost aren't they yeah you would have, like, Dupin coming at the end and go, like, oh, well, you see, he, yeah. he was affected by a, a, a madness that was first precipitated by it. And that would explain it all. And without that, you've got a gothic story. And then with the explanation, you've got a detective story all of a sudden. No, but, the, I mean, those have real, like, shared roots. Mm. You have the gothic, which then turns into the urban gothic. And that very clearly splits off into the detective novel. Mm, yeah. They very much have these, these like roots. He's, like, a sort of crucible of all of that stuff yeah. going on, isn't he? Yeah, which is very impressive. But to go back to the idea of, you know, some of the psychology and the supernatural yeah, yeah. and the... The idea of time is the thing that I found really interesting in this and how the pacing it speeds up or it stretches mm. way out and or like the pacing doesn't make sense or some of it like is this just you thinking it was an hour when it was actually three seconds. And the other thing I noticed about temporality is that most of these stories start in medias res. Mm. So there's seemingly no real past, no real future, just a horrifying present. That said, a lot of them also start after the fact they kind of start both in, in medias rest like so the the um, black cat the black cat and the telltale heart they're both confessions but then also you're just like thrust right into the, if, if that makes sense so yeah, in that but, it's not it's not just the present and past are sort of open and terrifyingly unending but also that they kind of fold over onto each other in a way that's yeah. just even more disconcerting but I was thinking like the telltale heart or the pit and the pendulum we get absolutely no earlier context not no, yeah, even no, they don't explain not anything. even a wink yeah. at it and i think that's that works really well yeah. and the temporality stuff also works with my casting because the tagline for the show could be tom waits for no man classy yeah that's a classy I like, piece i like that Very, no you don't no i think he's done that actually oh god damn it that's think, so annoying he... so here's some advice 
The first and second person narration in this, which we've talked about, you know, where a character directly addresses a reader, that's always a great point for your analysis because it usually indicates a character's state of mind, usually mad or unreliable, or it's sort of the slipperiness of an omniscient mm -hmm. narrator. So if you're doing an essay, on a text that is like this, focus on the narration because it, it all comes down to control. Who has the power? You as the reader see everything, but the narrator or author controls your gaze. So mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a real power play between you and the narrator, and that's interesting. So now our clue to the next episode. You know what we haven't had yet this season, Daniel? No. A Shakespeare text. And this one is going to give you and possibly even me, a chance to showcase our accents. Hmm. Mm. So it's one of those plays set in America. The I... Tempest Prince Prospero. <laughs> yes. We didn't even talk about that. Yeah. So please write into our email or tweet us at smfms underscore podcast. Please subscribe wherever you listen. Um, it really helps us out. Yeah, we're on TikTok. We're on Instagram. We might be over on Blue Sky soon. I'm working on that. Ooh. We have a Patreon. Don't forget, if you guys are interested in our book club, it's going to be, I think, the 2nd of November. All right, guys. We will see you then. Peace out. <laughs> Peace out, indeed. Thanks for listening to Save Me From My Shelf. Our music is The Overture to Don Giovanni by Mozart, and cover art is by Catherine Wu. Our thanks to Aston University's Center for Critical Inquiry and to Society and Culture for funding the startup of this podcast. Contact us at savemefrommyshelf at gmail.com or at smfms underscore podcast on Twitter. And do not... I'm going to remind you, do not forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Do not forget. Thank you. <laughs>